All right, so I'm Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to get this out of the way. And we're studying the gospel according to Mark. This is our next week in that. So we're going into Mark chapter 7. We're going to study verses 1 through 13. That'll be our focus for this time. And I'm going to stick really close to this thing because I got a lot of these pages and I know you don't have a lot of time. So I'm going to stick closer than I normally do today. So today we're going to talk about the concept of full and empty as we look at this next passage in the Gospel of Mark. And I think the concepts of full and empty as we hold these things together and we look at the differences between full things and empty things, that it might give us a bit of insight into a group of people that we might want to write off really quick and say, those guys, I know some people like those guys, the Pharisees. But as we look at the concept of full and empty, we might get some insight into where they're coming from and we might realize that we're a little more like them than we want to admit. So Mark chapter 7 is a bit of kind of like a pivot point in the story of the ministry of Christ. We'll see more as we continue, but last week was kind of the peak of Jesus' popularity in public ministry. You ever look in the mirror and say, hmm, I probably peaked <laughs> maybe a little while back, maybe six months ago, maybe 10 years ago, I don't know. I think I've already peaked. Well, last week, Jesus peaked in terms of human popularity. And this week, Jesus is going to take a very intentional tone as the attention may fade, but Jesus' message gets clearer and clearer. So full and empty, this is what I want you to look through the lens of. Um, so last week, we talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000 men, right? And it was 5,000 men, which means it was at least 5,001 people, probably closer to 10, 15, 20,000 people that Jesus fed there. And it was a beautiful, wonderful miracle. Baskets and baskets and baskets of fish sticks. And probably those little loaves from Outback. <laughs> That's what I think of whenever I think of the bread. So just baskets full of them. A work of Jesus' creative power, creating this fish out of nothing, just out of his hands, really. Like this little bit of fish, multiplying, 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 creating fish where there was not fish and creating provision where there was not provision. Giant power that we see as Jesus does this miracle, but precision at the same time. You know, sometimes power without precision can be a bad thing, like Tim the Toolman Taylor, just running all over the place. But at the very, yes, that's me, at the very end of this miracle, we see 12 baskets left over, exactly enough to provide for the 12 disciples. So in the midst of Jesus's infinite ability to create, he has precision down to the one. And it's a beautiful opportunity to worship. When we look at the full baskets, those 12 full baskets with little name tags on them for the folks that are following the Lord. Also, as we look ahead to next week, these things right here are going to be full of frozen turkeys. Makes me wonder like how strong these like handles are because frozen turkeys, I mean, there's a big old range of them. But I long to see these things full of turkey as a way to reach out to our community. And as we see these things full, I'm reminded where Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 34, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And as a church, I would say out of the overflow of our heart for Hagerstown and out of the overflow of our heart, specifically for the area around Pangborn Elementary, 
in which we are engaging in a bit of a long distance relationship right now, out of the overflow of our heart for those people in that community, these things will fill up and these things will speak a word to folks saying, even though we can't be physically close right now, even though we can't meet in the elementary school that your child may attend, our heart still goes out to you. These things will speak even though we can't be close every single week. So I think these things, as we fill them, as we have those conversations on Saturday morning, as we maybe invite somebody to lunch, as we open the door for a real relationship, as this connection point would give us, I think that's a beautiful thing that could overflow into a a gospel opportunity. Maybe some of our next covenant members are on the other side of a turkey bag. That's a strange phrase, turkey bag. (laughs) Maybe some of our next missionaries are on the other side of these handles right here. Maybe some of our next pastors are waiting to hear the gospel and waiting to grow in faith, and the point of connection will be next Saturday morning. When we just open up our hearts and our wallets and our hands to make gospel connections. So I long to see these bags right here full of turkey for that reason. Not just so that we can be like, good deed done, it's that time of the year. But this is helping people find and follow Jesus. And this is one of the most tangible ways we do it every single year. So, that enough of a plug, Brett? Next Saturday, 9.30, 10 a.m. There you go. So, full shopping bags, full of frozen turkey. But the empty thing is what we're going to focus on today. And the emptiness is such a stark contrast to what people may present on the outside. Today, I want to focus on the phrase, empty tradition. And as we look through Mark chapter 7, we're going to see a lot of places where the concept of empty tradition will ring loud and clear to you. And the main point today, if you don't get nothing else, is that Jesus rejects empty religious tradition, but he blesses worship that overflows from your heart. I'll say that again. There it is, too. Jesus rejects empty tradition, like empty religious tradition. But Jesus chooses to bless the worship that will overflow from a heart that loves him. Jesus is not looking for the externals, but he's looking for an overflow of praise from a heart that truly loves him with all its mind, soul, and strength. And I think there was one else, but I forgot. So... Deuteronomy chapter 6, look it up. So let's recap just a little bit so that we can actually get into the narrative here. So as Jesus peaks in popularity with that miracle of feeding the 5,000 people, right after that, he uses that miracle to say, I want to talk about the bread of life. I would rather talk about spiritual things that are far more important than the meal that you just ate. And bottom line was, All of the crowds, many of the crowds, the majority of the crowds, wanted nothing to do with that. They went away when he told them the issues that he was concerned about. They were materialists at heart. They were religious materialists. And maybe their religious interest might have stemmed from what they could get physically or even emotionally or even like feeling like a part of something that's bigger than themselves They were longing for that materially and superficially, and their heart was not inclined toward the Lord. So superficial religion does not change your heart. 
It just doesn't. So these folks, we can see, they were materialists at heart, but they were religious in public. And in any case, they didn't love God, nor did they worship him from their heart. They didn't hate their own sin. That was a defining mark. And they didn't embrace Jesus as the Redeemer and the Savior. And although you might not notice it at first, these folks that were interested in the gifts that Jesus was giving, but not the giver of those gifts, they don't look very much like what we would think of when we hear the word Pharisee. And if that's a weird word to you, we're going to get to it and we're going to explain it. But when we think about the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, and when we think about the common folks that were just looking for another material thing from the Lord, they may not seem too superficially similar. But the crux of what we're going to talk about today is that both the crowds and the Pharisees were looking for something that even though it would make them feel good in the moment, following the rules for the Pharisees, getting another thing from the crowds, the things that they were looking for would ultimately lead to death and to eternity in hell. On the surface, the crowds and the Pharisees are looking for two totally different things. But they were both looking to Jesus for a quick, tangible fix to a deep spiritual problem that was not connected to what they were actually seeking. And today we're going to look at a faulty, hypocritical way that the Pharisees were doing it. And we're going to be like, ooh, hypocrites, aren't they terrible? And then we're going to be like, ooh, hypocrites, aren't they terrible? So in three points, we're going to see, this is our outline today, empty tradition is dangerous, number one. It's not something to be played around with. It's not something that we can just tolerate. It's also deceitful. There is a deceit to empty tradition. And also, the resolution of that is deciding to trust Jesus and allow him to fill your heart with that kind of worship that he's looking for. So it's dangerous, it's deceitful, and the only way out is deciding to trust Jesus to fill your heart with the worship that he wants because you can't even get it in there. You have to ask Jesus for it so that you can give it back to him. Isn't that crazy? So let's jump into our text, Mark chapter seven, verses one through 13. Y'all got it? Cool. Starting in verse one, it says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Isn't that strange? And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus replied, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Jesus also said, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men instead. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. 
For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And he also said, whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that means already set aside for God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So scathing, scathing words from Jesus. And it's incredible to see the contrast from last week, right? So let's just jump right into it. The first point is that empty tradition is dangerous. And here we can see in Mark chapter 7, it feels like narrative whiplash. Like just last week, we were seeing a Jesus that was moved with compassion from the pit of his stomach for people that were like sheep without a shepherd. And this week, we can see that the compassionate Jesus also has the ability to be the condemning judge. At the same time, the same man, consistently having the character of God and being compassionate toward people in their suffering, but also condemning to people who are falsely religious. So before we jump into the details of how the Pharisees' actions revealed the location of their heart, I just want to take this whole point of danger to underline the importance of what we're studying. You can't miss the fact that it's super possible to be religious and look religious and say, amen, brother, and to be completely opposed to God, totally opposed to him. It's even possible to direct your religious activity toward the right God and go to the right church and sing the right songs and wear the right tie or button-down shirt that doesn't get tucked in or whatever the culture is telling you to do at that point. It's possible to even direct all of your worship toward the right stuff and for your Spotify playlist to have the right worship songs. It's possible for you to culturally fit in and direct what you feel like is worship toward the right God and still be on the road to hell. It is possible to be sincere, but be sincerely wrong. And God cares about the way in which he's worshiped and the condition of your heart. It's deadly important to understand the commandments that God has put down. It's also common to relate to God in a faulty way like this. If you read the Old Testament, it's like over and over and over, you're seeing God saying, you look right, but man, that is like one coat of makeup over something that is really not attractive. Really not attractive. And so I want to take a look at Isaiah chapter one, because Isaiah chapter one is a good example of one of the times in which Israel was exactly like this worshiping, saying the right things, following the religious calendar, but their hearts had been far from him for a long, long time. And God calls them on the carpet because he loves them too much to keep them in a state of deception. So let's go to Isaiah chapter one, starting in verse 13. God says this to Israel, who are acting like the Pharisees right now. He says, bring no more vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. So stop right there. I cannot endure the tension that exists between you coming to church, pretty much, 
and the existence and persistence of sin in your heart. Still coming, still saying the same things, still hoping that nobody notices, but never repenting and confessing of your sin, never mourning over the fact that we don't follow the Lord the way that we should, never asking God for his forgiveness. Basically, trampling God's holiness and then still showing up for church on Sunday morning. So let's continue. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. And your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil and learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. And plead the widow's cause. So he's saying, don't change something about your gathering. Change your hearts. And here comes this next famous passage, verse 18, where he says, If repentance is present, then forgiveness is possible. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they'll be white like wool. John MacArthur says that Jesus faced this hypocritical worship in his day as it had been faced by all the Old Testament prophets before the exile and even after the exile. And right here today, we still face it. There is vast, far-reaching, sweeping, worldwide, empty, meaningless worship directed at God over and over that is nothing but hypocrisy, sham, externalism, legalism, ceremony, and ritual. This is dangerous stuff. Things not to be played around with. And Jesus, out of deep love for everyone made in the image of God, chooses to press into uncomfortable conversations and issue three indictments toward the Pharisees. So let's cover um, the condition of the Pharisees in this way. So look at verses six and seven. The first thing he says is that they're hypocrites. Well, does Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrine, the commandments of men. So in love, because he wants repentance to come from them, he indicts them by saying, you guys and the way that you elevate your traditions are acting hypocritical. Another thing, verse eight, he says, the Pharisees are married to tradition. Maybe I'm stretching this a little bit, but in verse eight, this language kind of reminds me of marriage. He says, you would leave the commandment of God and you would hold to the tradition of men. Think about Genesis chapters one and two. Just think about Adam and Eve and, and the marriage example that is set out there. There's leaving father and mother and there's cleaving to your husband, wife, you know? So he would say, you would be leaving the commandment of God and you would be cleaving to the tradition of men. The way that you're living right now, you may say is compatible with religion and you can hold these two things at the same time and still be that person. 
But he's saying, even though you want to present that front, it looks more like you have left the Bible and you have gotten married to your own tradition. That's what the language looks like to me. And either way, he is lovingly really pressing into them and saying, you have abandoned the most important thing. So one, you're hypocrites. Two, you're married to your own tradition. And three, you have nullified God's word. So look at the very last verse, verse 13. Jesus says that what they're doing by elevating their traditions is effectively making God's word null and void in their lives. And I'm sure with every indictment that Jesus hands down to the Pharisees, the first one you're like, oh, sick burn, like, oh no, glad I'm not them. The second one you're like, wow, he's really pressing in. And then by the third one, the fact that they have nullified God's word by the way that they're living is probably easy for you to say, whoa, these people are really, really terrible. Like I imagine them like a Jafar from Aladdin with the big hat and just like, ha, 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 ha. Like they're really terrible people and it should be really easy to spot hypocrites. Should be really easy to spot Pharisees and folks that trust their own self-righteousness. You'd think you'd be able to spot it from a mile away, even if they're wearing their mask. Like it's super like easy to, to see, but you probably know where I'm going. It's not. It's insidious. That's what makes hypocrisy and self-righteousness such a dangerous thing, is the fact that it's not an obvious thing to see. So empty tradition is dangerous, and out of the danger we'll see that the tradition they're following is deceitful. They may not even realize. Some of them do, but maybe at the very beginning they're getting roped into this and their hearts are deceived into thinking this is a way that they can get to God. When you glance over this section of your Bible, it's not really hard to see that one of the most important words in this section is tradition. Over and over and over and over. It's mentioned six times in 13 verses. Tradition, tradition, tradition. Like Fiddler on the Roof, you know? Tradition. You know that? Does anyone watch that movie ever? No? Okay. (laughs) So it's a theme that we can get to the heart of the text through. So it's mentioned six times in 13 verses, and I'll just look through a couple of them. Verse 3. You're holding on to the tradition of the elders. Verse 5, why don't your disciples walk according to the tradition of the elders? That's what they're really concerned about. Verse 8, Jesus says back to them, you're leaving God's commandments and you're holding to the tradition of the elders. And verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting God's commandments in order to establish the tradition of men or the tradition of the elders. Tradition, tradition, tradition. What is this tradition? If we figure out what that is, maybe we can get a little bit to the heart here. So this is where we got to actually learn a little bit about Jewish culture so that maybe we can understand where they're coming from and how we can relate to them. And the rabbi, the rabbis over the centuries compiled a giant, massive number of volumes of religious tradition that have accompanied the Old Testament. So in Jesus' day, he's looking at folks that have studied the Old Testament for a really long time and have generated a whole lot of commentary on that work and a whole lot of rules that go around that work that they've ended up calling the tradition of the elders. So basically, just put two pictures in your mind here. Actually, just put one picture for now to make it clearer. Uh, Think of a big, tall fence 
big old privacy fence. Like you think you're a really good neighbor and then all of a sudden you see the fence coming up and you're like, oh, maybe I'm more annoying than I think I am. Like a big tall fence coming up. But fences are in order to either keep somebody out and conversely to protect, protect something that is inside the fence. And so in order for the rabbis and the Jewish folk of the day to protect God's word, they were looking to build up a rabbinical tradition around the law. So the idea was that if you didn't violate the tradition that rabbis were setting out, then you would be so far away from disobeying the law that you would be super righteous and holy and not very sinful. That is a very optimistic, aspirational view of maybe where the tradition started. And so folks did describe the tradition of the elders, as they called it, as a fence around the scriptures. And that's a really wise thing to have boundaries in your life to protect the things that you value. So they would say, like, if I find myself violating the tradition, that's a bad thing, but that's just like a yellow light going off saying, if you keep going, you'll end up sinning. And they care about not sinning. So that's a good thing, right? Let me tell you what John MacArthur says about this, and maybe it'll fill out why this good intention thing maybe morphed into a thing that was really not so good. John MacArthur says, this fence consisted of generation after generation of rituals and rules and ceremonies and behaviors of all kinds, prohibitions, precepts to protect supposedly the law of God. A massive amount of material developed over time as rabbis kept putting up fence after fence after fence and together, all those writings ended up being called literally the tradition of the elders. And in fact, around 200 AD, not long after Jesus' life, Rabbi Yehuda pulled together all this material uh, and called it the Mishnah. It was an eclectic array of material. Some of it sort of authoritative teaching by rabbis, and some of it just like scribbled notes by the folks that followed those rabbis. It was good, bad, and indifferent material, but it was just all together. A lot of it started as an oral tradition and then it ended up becoming written down. So inside, it was called the Mishnah and, it, and the word Mishnah means to repeat. It represented the total accumulated content of Jewish tradition. It contained the decisions of wise men and the musings of idiots, John MacArthur's words, not mine, and everything in between. But their idea was to illuminate and interpret the law, a good thing but volumes on volumes on volumes on volumes. Like when Jesus said, you Pharisees place a heavy burden on people. He was conjuring up the image that like, if you had all these books with you so that you could remember what to do, you'd have a back problem. They're really heavy. It's a lot of stuff. So, for example, in Mark chapter seven, Mark tells us that they had all kinds of laws about the washing of cups and copper pots and like, reclining couches, and you were like, what was that about? Actually, in the Mishnah, there are 30 chapters about how to wash your cups and your copper pots. 30 chapters of instructions, like, you know, when you go to the recipe sites, and it's like, it was a nice, cozy fall, autumn day, and yada, 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 and you have to keep scrolling until you even get to the recipe. Like, there were 30 chapters of how to wash your pots. And you had to follow all that minutia and prescription so that you would be ritually clean in your house. 
And Jesus said that all this tradition that they had built up initially to say, I love the word and I don't want to sin. So I'm putting extra boundaries in place. Jesus is saying that this tradition had morphed into a replacement for the Bible. Imagine the Pharisees building up their fences higher and higher and higher. And all of a sudden, Wilson from Home Improvement can't even like stick his head over all of a sudden, you can't even see what the other side of the fence even is. You can't even remember what the thing that you're trying to protect looks like. And then you start to care about something else. You start to treat the fence like more than you should. And you start to make sure that all the maintenance is done on the fence. And you become a fence man. And that's a nice fence. And you've forgotten the point. Jesus is saying that the Pharisees are being deceived by this tradition. And their traditions are actually doing two counterproductive things in their life. One, they're feeding a desire to try to work their way toward God's love. They're, they're putting themselves into this self-righteousness mindset. And also, the tradition is helping them to make convenient excuses for their sinful tendencies. Two very dangerous things that holy-looking church people can easily fall into and that Jesus is warning us against. So one, the tradition is indicating how the Pharisees are trying to just work their way toward God's love. That's what's going on in verse two and following when the Pharisees get into it about hand washing. And we know that people can get into it about hand washing in 2020, right? And where your mask is and what it covers and what it doesn't. Like, but this is not that. So let's go back to verse two. And we'll see that the Pharisees are not mad because people are sinning or putting people in danger. They're mad because someone's breaking their man-made tradition. Verse two, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. So let's talk about the word defiled and then that'll show you what they actually care about. Whenever this, these words defiled, unwashed come up, that doesn't mean like they hold up their hands and you're like, ugh. There's actually stuff on it, like the little green stench marks coming up. That doesn't actually mean that there's like physical nastiness on their hands. People back in the day knew to wash their hands. They'd made the connection that if your hands are dirty and you eat, you get sick. And there were things in the law to say, you should wash your hands. There were, there were laws for everybody saying, advising the washing of hands for everybody. That's one thing. The second thing, whenever we come to the law, is that there were Levitical procedures. So if you were a priest, you would need to wash your hands ceremonially before you offered a sacrifice on behalf of people. That way, you could be considered ritually clean, ceremonially clean, so that you could speak on behalf of another and that you could offer that sacrifice. The Pharisees aren't talking about either one of those things, though. You might think that on the first reading, but they're talking about this tradition, this third thing here. Look at verses three and four. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands. And the word hands here in the original language actually means the word fist. So we don't know exactly what they're talking about in terms of what the ceremony was, but commentators do say that because the word fist is used here, unless they carefully wash their fist, they are ritually cleansing their hands before any sort of meal, according to some sort of rabbinical tradition. 
It's unclear exactly which one. But it's not because there's physical danger from their hands being dirty. And it's not because they're priests offering a sacrifice. It's because there's another rule that's been set up just as an extra step. And these folks have made this rule so important that it's all they can think about. Verse four says, when they come from the marketplace, the Pharisees do not eat unless they wash. So they're so thoughtful about every little rule that has nothing to do with the Bible that when they would go in the market, they would realize, and this is their thought process, this is what all of their brain matter is taken up with. When I go to Walmart, I'm gonna bump into all kinds of different people. They're thinking their shoulder might brush up against a Samaritan person and that's a no-no, and they might stand too close in the self-checkout line to a Gentile, and then this other, per- like you never know. Like the, the person that you're next to in the freezer section might have touched a dead body or may have like um, handled a reptile in the past three days. That's really a thing. And they would know that that would make them ceremonially unclean. And so the whole time they're out getting groceries, they're, all, they're always thinking, how can I be so adherent, compliant with this extra scriptural tradition that I can be as far away from sinning as possible. So it's leading them. See how like taking that in a certain way can sound really good, but our hearts are so wicked and, and our hearts can turn anything into an attempt to make our way to God without God himself. And so even though these words can come from a heart that really doesn't want to sin, it becomes really obvious that these folks are following all the rules in an attempt to get there themselves. Deep down, this was about an attempt to do all the right things so that they'd be accepted by God. Have you ever felt that way? You ever felt that way in church? You ever felt that way when you know Sarah's gonna ask you at D group if you did your reading? And you know, if you didn't do all of it, that that might be ceremonially unclean. Like there might be a societal cost for that. And you know that reading the Bible is good, but your heart has gotten off just a little bit and you care about what Sarah thinks and you care about um, following all the rules as a way to get to, to God's acceptance. You've gotten it backwards and our hearts do that all the time. And we need to be reminded all the time that works righteousness is just a lie. It's a really good lie, and we end up believing it all the time. So that's, the Pharisees are operating, in a sense, a deep sense, out of a works righteousness mentality. I know that for sure, because I'll quote you out of this Mishnah that I just told you about. This guy, Rabbi Yehuda, said, whoever makes their abode in Israel and eats with washed hands will inherit eternal life. For real. That's a quote out of it. Whoever makes their abode in Israel and eats with washed hands in a continual sense will inherit eternal life. Boom, boom, boom. Good works equal God loves me. And if you're not saved by grace, you'll try to do anything to work your way to God. Even something as silly as hand washing. And Jesus loved the Pharisees enough to be calling them out with that So this tradition is deceiving them by saying there is a way to work yourself to God. There's not. It's a lie. 
But this tradition also deceives them by saying, it's okay to be sinful, let's just make an excuse for it. So the second thing, tradition helped them to make convenient excuses for their sinful tendencies. Let's go to verse 9. Verse 9 says, Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained from me is already designated for God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. So this is a little bit of a different gear to get on, but I think it's also super, super important. So this was a rabbinical tradition that could help you look really holy by devoting your things to God, but it was simply a way in which you could violate the commandment to care for your parents. So it's a really hard-hearted thing to do. For example, like, oh, I'm sorry, like, like mom, dad, even though I can see that you need some care, even though I know that, that you're getting up there and you're going to need more than you used to and maybe, you know, you weren't able for whatever reason to save for your retirement in a way that's going to really cover all the bases, I can see that you have a need, but, sorry, the Lord wants us to give out of our times, talents, and treasures. And, you know, I, I have been called by God to be generous. And so the money that I could be helping you with, sorry, that's, that's, my, that, that's already devoted to God. So there was a tradition in which the rabbis and the Jewish people of the day were just using the Bible to sidestep things that they didn't really feel like doing anyway. So they were actually violating God's word in the name of God's word. That could be kind of confusing, but the whole purpose of this rule was that they didn't want to lose their cash. They wanted to avoid the loss by saying, this money is for God. And they built a system in order to make that happen. The Talmud, which is another piece of Jewish tradition, says that a man wasn't even bound after saying that this was dedicated to God. He wasn't actually bound to give it immediately. He was not bound to limit its use for himself, and he was not bound to give it to someone other than he had pledged to. That is to say, if he chose, he could break the law and give it to someone else and not to God. But he had said it's dedicated to God. And so basically what I'm saying is they had made a system that was so flimsy that it was obvious that this was just like a safe word, honestly. Like, sorry, this stuff is set aside for God but there was no accountability for it. And it was totally socially acceptable for you to just walk away from that vow anyway, but you said it, so you checked the box. So they had made all these convenient ways to just kinda like say the church stuff, but their hearts were left alone. That's exactly the opposite of what we're trying to build here at Hagerstown Church. We want people to find and follow Jesus, and sometimes that means uncomfortable conversations. And sometimes that means uncomfortable reckonings in your own heart. And always that means accountability to the word and saying that the word matters here. We want to build exactly the opposite of the place where everybody just says, we did the religious thing and we don't care enough about God's word and your own heart to dig into the uncomfortable conversations.
So the Pharisees had built this whole system to just kind of sidestep everything. And Jesus looked at that and said, don't fool yourself. There is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is destruction. And you need to remember the truth. So their tradition was dangerous. Their tradition had them fooled into a false sense of holiness. And what's the way out of that? The only way out of that is not to find a new system. It's not to just get a different set of rules. It's to decide to trust in Jesus, to fill your heart to overflowing. He says, I don't want anything to do with empty tradition. The only thing that I'm looking for is a believer that loves the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and with all of his strength. And the only way to get there is by trusting God to fill your heart with the kind of worship that he wants. So as you walk through this week, my prayer for you is that God would help you to identify and root out the areas in your life where you're trying to work your way toward God's love and God's acceptance and toward places where you may have made exceptions to sinful tendencies in your life. Are there ways in which I'm just kind of sidestepping something that I know that I should be trusting the Lord for. So if we're honest, the sin of hypocrisy has always spread easily through the church. John MacArthur says, God's name, I think, is taken more times in vain in churches than anywhere else. The blasphemy in the sanctuary is worse than the blasphemy in the street. Empty ceremony, superficial worship, thoughtless praise, errant doctrine, a love of that error, indifferent prayer, phony ritual, these things abound. Hypocrisy always spreads easily through the church. And we've always known that. It's always been super obvious that the church is full of hypocrites. The old pastor like, would always tell the joke about it. He would tell the story about a member that he's been pursuing for some time that would boldly come back to him and say, I never go to church, pastor. I'm sure you've noticed that I don't even show up most of the time. And he says, well, yeah, that's kind of like why we're talking. Like, why don't you come to church anymore? And she says, it's obvious. The reason I don't go to church is because there's so many hypocrites there. And he says with a smile, don't let that keep you away. There's always room for one more. (laughs) I know, it's lame. You just have to kind of own the cheesiness of that joke. (laughs) But... The church is full of hypocrites because the church is full of divided, broken people struggling to follow Jesus in an imperfect, jagged line, up, down, up, down, hopefully two steps forward, one step back, by God's grace kind of way. That's why the church is full of hypocrites. And can anything be done about hypocrisy on a corporate level with like one click of the button? No. The thing that can be done about hypocrisy is individual repentance and individual choice to actually trust the Lord and align your values. When you have time this week, go back and read the testimony of Paul in Philippians chapter three. That man was the embodiment of what we can see in Mark chapter seven. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he calls himself. He knew what a hypocritical lifestyle could look like. And he said, all those things that were once gained to me, I counted as loss. When the Spirit pricked his heart, he knew 
that all of his efforts to just kind of like measure up and get his appearance right were for nothing. And at that point, he says, I discovered a righteousness that was not of my own. I discovered the righteousness of God, which comes by faith in Christ. He says in his letters to the Galatians that he was crucified with Christ. And it was no longer he that even lived, but Christ who lived in him. Let's close by going back to that passage in Isaiah chapter one. Because even when the Lord indicts us and says the tough things, he offers forgiveness. He offers new life. He offers to renew your spirit if you come to him humbly through repentance. So let's close with Isaiah chapter one, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is God's promise, if we'll only trust it. Would you pray with me? God, we do thank you that you love us enough to lean in and have tough conversations with us. God, they're not enjoyable conversations. And we understand that our holiness cannot come from us just trying to obey the law on our own. We understand that we strive for righteousness over and over and over in our flesh. And we come up empty. We know that our flesh and our heart fail. God, help us to trust you. Help us to just drop the pretense and ask you for help. Lord, don't let us walk away from this gathering today still trusting in some sort of fake, self-serving religion. Humble us so that we can follow you and worship in spirit and in truth. We pray this in your name. Amen.